Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama by Floyd Akers. This is the sequel to The Boy Fortune Hunters in Alaska. As you may remember from the previous Fortune Hunters in Alaska, Floyd Akers is the pseudonym for Frank Baum, who thought a boy's adventure series would not sell as well with his own name attached. In fact, it is even more complicated. This book was originally published in 1907 under an entirely different Baum pseudonym, Captain Hugh Fitzgerald, with a different title as Sam Steele's Adventures in Panama. It was reprinted and retitled the following year as The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama under the pen name Floyd Akers. It is an exceedingly rare book in any of its printings early in the last century. However, Uvila Audio makes it live again for you. In this volume, Sam Steele discovers a location of a lost tribe deep in the heart of Panama, where diamonds litter the earth. A secret map found among a dead man's belongings points the way, but to get there, Sam will need to maneuver through mountains, marshes, and mayhem. Luckily, Sam's new partner is the unpredictable inventor, Duncan Moit. Come join Sam and his friends on a dangerous journey to riches and adventures. And now, The Boy Fortune Hunters in Panama. Chapter 1. I Undertake a Hazardous Voyage The bark Nebuchadnezzar came staggering into Chelsea Harbor in a very demoralized condition. Her main and mizzen masts were both gone. The bulwarks were smashed in, the poop swept away and she leaked so badly that all the short-handed crew were nearly ready to drop from the exhausting labor of working the pumps. For after weathering a dreadful storm in which the captain and mate were washed overboard, together with five of the men, those remaining had been forced to rig up a square sail on the foremast, and by hook or crook to work the dismantled hulk into harbor. And this they did from no love of the ship, but as a matter of mere self-preservation, the small boats having all been lost or destroyed. Soon as they dropped anchor in the harbor, they fled from the crippled ship and left her to her fate. It fortunately happened that an agent of the owners, a man named Harlan, lived at Chelsea and was able to take prompt action to save the company's property. The Nebuchadnezzar was loaded heavily with structural steel from Birmingham, which had been destined for San Pedro, California, which is the port of entry for the important city of Los Angeles. Hours, they had her safe from sinking, although she still looked more like a splintered tub than a ship. And now the agent spent a whole day exchanging telegrams with the chief agents of the line in New York. It appeared to unload the heavy structural beams, which were of solid steel, and ship them by rail across the continent, which would entail a serious loss, the freight rates being enormous for such a distance. There was at the time no other ship procurable to carry the cargo on to its destination. Either the old Nebuchadnezzar had to be made seaworthy again, and sent on its way around the Horn to San Pedro, or the company was in for a tremendous loss. Harlan was a man of resource and energy. 
he promptly informed his superiors he would undertake to fit the ship for sea, and speedily. So he was given permission to go ahead. New masts were stepped, the damages repaired, and the bark put in as good condition as possible. But even then it was a sad parody of a ship, and the chances of it ever getting to the port of destination were regarded by all observers as extremely doubtful. Having done the best in his power, however, Mr. Harlan came to my father and said, Captain Steele, I want to take the Nebuchadnezzar to San Pedro. The captain smiled and answered with his usual deliberation. Thank you, Mr. Harlan, but I can't by any possibility get away this winter. You see, we were just building our new vessel, the Seagull, which was to be our future pride and joy, and my father did not believe that the work could progress properly unless he personally inspected every timber and spike that went into her. Just now the builders were getting along finely, and during the coming winter all the interior fittings would be put in. I knew very well that nothing could induce Captain Steele to leave the Seagull at this fascinating period of its construction. Mr. Harlan was very grave and anxious, and spoke frankly of the difficulty he was in. You see, sir, my reputation is at stake in this venture, and if anything happens to that cargo, they will blame me for it. The only way to avoid a heavy loss is to get the old hull into port, and I am aware that to accomplish this task, a man of experience and exceptional judgment is required. There is not another captain on the coast I would so completely and confidently trust with this undertaking as I would you, sir, and we can afford to pay you very well for the voyage. My father appreciated the compliment, but it did not alter his resolve. Can't be done, Mr. Horland, he said, pressing the ashes into the bowl of his pipe and looking around the group of intent listeners with a thoughtful expression. Time was when I'd have liked a job of that sort, because it's exciting to fight a strong ocean with a weak ship. But my whole heart is in the seagull, and I can't and won't leave her. Just then, his eyes fell upon me, and they brightened. There's no reason howsoever, he added, why Sam can't undertake your commission. We won't be likely to need him this winter, after all. Mr. Harlan frowned and then looked toward me curiously. Would you really recommend a boy like Sam for such an important undertaking? he asked. Why not, sir? replied my father. Sam's as good a navigator as I am, and he's a brave lad and cool-headed, as has been proved. All he lacks is experience in working a ship, but he can take my own mate, Ned Britton, along. There's not a better sailing master to be had on two oceans. The agent began to look interested. He revolved the matter in his mind for a time and then turned to me and asked abruptly, Would you go, sir? I had been thinking, too, for the proposition had come with startling suddenness. On one condition, I said. What is that? That in case of accident... If, in spite of all our efforts, the old tub goes to the bottom, you will hold me blameless and look as cheerful as possible. The agent thought that over for what seemed a long time, considering the fact that he was a man of quick judgment and action. But I will acknowledge it was a grave condition I had required, and the man knew even better than I did 
that under the most favorable circumstances, the result of the voyage was more than doubtful. Finally, he nodded. I don't know of anyone I would rather trust. You are only a boy, Samsteel, but I've got your record. And I know Ned Britton. Next to getting Captain Steele himself, the combination is as good as I could hope to secure for my company. And I'm going to close with you at once. Condition at all. Britton, who was himself present at this conference, shifted uneasily in his chair. I ain't right sure we can ship a proper crew, sir, he remarked, eyeing me with the characteristic stare of his dark face and light blue eyes, which were as unreadable as a bit of glass. Well, we can try, Ned, I answered, with some concern. We can take Nux and Bryonia along, and we won't need over a dozen able seamen. I must explain that Nux and Bryonia mentioned were not homeopathic remedies, but two stout Maori South Sea Islanders who bore those absurd names and had already proven their loyalty and devotion to me, although they were the especial retainers of my uncle, Naboth Perkins. What became of the crew that brought the ship in? asked my father. Deserted, sir, and they dug out quick as scat answered Ned. Why? Said as nothing but bad luck followed the ship. She was a thirteener, sir, bound for to get in trouble. How's that? Why, I talked with the second mate who brung the ship in. He said they sailed from Liverpool on a Friday the 13th. There were thirteen aboard. It was the captain's thirteenth voyage. And the Nebuchadnezzar, which had thirteen letters in its name being as how it were misspelled by its builders, was thirteen year old to a day. That was bad enough for a starter, as everybody can guess. Thirteen days out, they struck trouble, and I clung to them, desperate as their own barnacles. You couldn't hire one of that crew to go aboard again, sir, for love or money. This dismal revelation struck a chill to all present, except perhaps Mr. Harlan and myself. I'm superstitious about some things. I acknowledge that. But 13, for me, has always been a number luckier than otherwise. However, I knew very well that sailors are obstinate and fearful. So I turned to the agent and said, You must paint out that name, Nebuchadnezzar, and replace it with any other you like. Do it at once before we attempt to ship a crew. With that accomplished, Ned won't have much trouble in getting the men he wants. I'll do it, replied Mr. Harlan promptly. I'll call her the Gladys H. after my own little daughter. That ought to bring her good luck. Ned bobbed his head approvingly. It was evident the idea pleased him, and removed his most serious objection to the voyage. Ah, uh, now, continued the agent, it is only necessary to discuss terms. These proved liberal enough, although I must say the money was no factor in deciding me to undertake the voyage. I had been quite fortunate in accumulating a fair share of worldly wealth, and a part of my own snug fortune had gone into our new seagull, of which I was to be a one-third owner. So it was really a desire to be doing something, and an irrepressible spirit of adventure that urged me on. 
For as my father said, a struggle with old ocean was always full of surprises. And when we had such frail support as the crippled Nebuchadnezzar, the fight was liable to prove interesting. But that preposterous name was painted out the following day, and before I trod the deck for the first time, the bark had been renamed the Gladys H., and was resplendent in fresh paint and new cordage. The old hulk actually looked seaworthy to a superficial observer, but Ned Britton went below and examined her seams carefully, and came back shaking his head. If the weather holds good and the cargo steady, we may be able to pull through, he told me. But if them big iron beams in the hold ever shifts their position, the whole hull is going to open up like a sieve. Don't whisper that to anybody, Ned, I cautioned him. We've got to take chances. He was not a man to recoil at taking chances, so he kept his mouth closed and in three days secured all the sailors we needed. They were a fairly good lot, all experienced and steady, and when I looked them over I was well pleased. One or two of them, who were new to our parts, grinned rather disrespectfully when they noted my size and youth, but I paid little attention to that. I was in reality a mere boy, and the only wonder is that they consented to sail under my command at all. My mate, however, looked every inch the sailor and won their immediate respect. While my father's ample reputation as a daring and skillful captain caused the men to be lenient in their judgment of his son. It was to be a long cruise, for Mr. Harlan had instructed me to skirt the coast the way to Cape Horn, keeping well into land so that at an emergency I could run the ship ashore and beach her. That would allow us to save the valuable cargo, even if we lost the ship, and that structural steel was worth a lot of bother, he assured me. When you get to the Cape, said the agent, take your time and wait for good weather to round it. There's no hurry, and by the time you arrive, the conditions there ought to be the most favorable of the year. Once in the Pacific, continue to hug the coast up to San Pedro, and then telegraph me for further instructions. Of course, you know the consignment is to the contracting firm of Wright and Landers, and when you arrive, they will attend to the unloading. I got my things aboard and found my room very pleasant and of ample size. I took quite a library of books along, for the voyage would surely consume most of the winter. We were liberally provisioned for the same reason, and our supplies were of excellent quality. My two Maoris, Nux and Bryonia, were calmly indifferent to everything except the fact that Mars Sam was going somewhere and would take them along. Bry was our cook, and a mighty good one, too. With him in charge of the galley, we were sure to enjoy our meals. Nux acted as steward and looked after the officers' cabins. He was wonderfully active and a tower of strength in time of need. Both men I knew I could depend on at all times, for they were intelligent, active, and would be faithful to the last. We arranged to sail with the tide on a Wednesday afternoon, the date being the 19th of September. On that eventful morning, every preparation was reported complete, and I rode to the shore for a final conference with the agent and a last farewell to my father. 
Chapter 2. I Ship a Queer Passenger The shipyards were on this side of the harbor and presented a busy scene, for besides our own beautiful seagull, whose hull was now nearly complete and so graceful in its lines that it attracted the wondering admiration of every beholder, several other ships were then in the yards in the course of construction. It was in one of the builder's offices that I met my father and Mr. Harlan, and while we were talking, a man came in and touched his cap to us, saying, May I speak to Captain Steele? He was about thirty years of age, somewhat thin and lanky in appearance, and would have been considered tall had he stood erect instead of stooping in the shoulders. His face was fine and sensitive in expression, and his eyes large and gray, but dreamy rather than alert. Gray eyes are usually shrewd. I rarely remember ever seeing such an abstracted and visionary look. The man's hair was thick and long and of a light brown, nearly sandy color. He was dressed well but carelessly and was evidently nervous and in a state of suppressed excitement when he accosted us. I noticed his hands were large and toil-worn and he clasped and unclasped them constantly as he looked from one to another of our group. I'm Captain Steele, said my father. Then, sir, I desire to ask a favor, was the reply. State it, my man. I want you to take me and my automobile with you on your voyage to Los Angeles. Mr. Harlan laughed, and I could not repress a smile myself. Then I'm not the Captain Steele you want, said my father. This is the one you must deal with he said, pointing a finger in my direction. The stranger turned, but to my satisfaction seemed in no way surprised or embarrassed to be confronted by a young man. It would be a great favor, sir, he continued earnestly. I beg you would grant my request. An automobile? I exclaimed. Yes, sir. Your request is unusual, I said, in order to decline gracefully for... Something about the fellow was strangely appealing. We're not a passenger ship. We're a slow freighter, and we're bound for a long voyage around the Horn. Time does not matter greatly. Only one thing really matters at all. And that is? The expense. We stared at him somewhat perplexed. Permit me to explain, he went on, still gazing at me alone with his beseeching eyes. I have invented an automobile, not strictly an automobile, it is true, but for want of a better name, I will call it that. I have been years experimenting and building it, for it is all the work of my own hands and the child of my exclusive brain. It is now just finished, complete in every part, but I find that I have exhausted nearly every available dollar of my money. In other words, sir, my machine has bankrupted me. He paused, and catching a wink from Mr. Harlan, I said in an amused tone, That's an old story, sir. You doubt it? No, I mean it's quite natural. Perhaps, he replied. You see, I had not thought of money, merely of success, but now that I have at last succeeded... I find I have need of money. 
My only relative is a rich uncle living in Pasadena, California, who is so eccentric in his disposition that were I to appeal to him for money, he would promptly refuse me. Most rich men have that same eccentricity, sir, I observed. But he is quite a genius commercially, and if he saw my machine, I am quite confident he would freely furnish the money I require to erect a manufacturing facility and promote its sale. I assure you, gentlemen, he looked vaguely around, that my machine is remarkable and an original invention. We nodded. There was no object in disputing such a modest statement. So I wish to get myself and my automobile to Los Angeles, and at the least possible expense. The railroads demand a large sum for freight and fare, and I have not so much money to pay. By accident, I learned that your ship is going to the very port I long to reach, so I hasten to appeal to you to take me. I have only $200 in my possession, the last I grieve to say of my ample inheritance. If you will carry us for that sum to your destination, I shall indeed be grateful for your kindness. I really began to feel sorry for the poor fellow. But I can't possibly take you. We sail this afternoon. The hatches are all closed, and they're battened down for the voyage now. I do not wish to put the machine in the hold, he answered with strange eagerness. All I ask is a spot in which to place it on the deck, anywhere that will be out of your way. I will make it secure myself and take every care of it, so that it will cause you no trouble at all. I'm afraid you could not get to the ship in time. It is already loaded upon a flat boat, which will take it to the Gladys Edge in an hour, once I have your permission. I looked at him in astonishment. You seem to have considered your request granted in advance, I remarked with some asperity. Not that, sir, I am not that impertinent, believe me. But I inquired about Captain Steele, and was told he's a good man and kind. So that I might lose no time if I obtained your consent, I had the machine loaded on the flatboat. Mr. Harlan at this point laughed outright. Acting upon a sudden impulse, I turned to him and said, May I decide this matter as I please? Of course, Sam, he replied. It is your affair, not mine. I looked at the stranger again. He was actually trembling with anxious uncertainty at this point. Very well, I announced. I will take you. For two hundred dollars? No, I'll carry you for nothing. You may need that extra money at your journey's end. He took out his handkerchief and wiped his brow, upon which beads of perspiration were standing. Thank you, sir. Thank you, he said simply. But I have to warn you, the bark is not in what we call A1 condition. If she happens to go to the bottom instead of San Pedro, I won't be responsible for your precious machine. Very well, sir. I will take as many chances as you do. Can I ask your name? Moit, sir. Duncan Moit. French? Yes, sir. By ancestry. All right. Make haste. Get your traps aboard as soon as possible. 
I will. Thank you, Captain Steele. He put on his cap and walked hurriedly away. And when he had gone, both Mr. Harlan and my father rallied on account of my queer passenger. He looks like a crank to me, Sam, said the agent. But it's your fireworks, not mine. Whatever induced you to take him on? Captain Steele inquired, wonderingly. The bare fact that he was so anxious to go, I replied. He may be a crank on the automobile question, and certainly it is laughable to think of shipping a machine to Los Angeles on a freighter around the horn. But the poor fellow seemed to be a gentleman, and he's hard up, and it appeared to be no more than a Christian act to help him out for his troubles. You may be helping him into trouble if that confounded cargo of yours takes a notion to shift, observed my father with a shake of his grizzled head. But it's not going to shift, sir, I declared firmly. I'm looking for good luck on this voyage, and the chances are I'll find it. The agent slapped me on the shoulder approvingly. That's the way to talk, he cried. I'm mortally certain, Sam, that you'll land that cargo at San Pedro in safety. I'm banking on you anyhow, young man. I thanked him for his confidence, and having bade a last goodbye to my father and my employer, I walked away with good courage and made my way toward the boat, which was waiting for me. Uncle Naboth was waiting, too, for I found his chubby form squatting on the gunwale. Uncle Naboth's other name was Mr. Perkins, and he was an important member of the firm of Steel, Perkins, and Steel, being my dead mother's only brother and my own staunch friend. I had thought my uncle in New York until now, and had written him a letter of farewell to his address in that city that very morning. But here he was, smiling serenely at me as I approached. What's this foolishness I hear, Sam? he demanded when I had shaken his hand warmly. I'm off on a trip around the Horn, to carry a cargo of building steel to the Pacific coast in that crippled old bark yonder. His sharp eye followed mine and rested on the ship. Anything in it, my lad? Not much except adventure, Uncle. But it'll keep me from growing musty until spring comes and the seagull is ready for launching. I'm dead tired of loafing around. He began to chuckle and cough and choke, but finally he controlled himself sufficiently to gasp. So am I, Sam. You? Tired as blazes. New York's a frost, Sam. Nothing doing there that's worth mentioning. All smug-faced men and paint-faced women. No sassiness, and more policemen than there is sailors. Haircuts thirty-five cents, and two five-cent drinks for a quarter. I feel like Aladdin and the Forty Thieves, me being Aladdin. But, Uncle, it wasn't Aladdin that the Forty... Never mind that. Got a spare bunk aboard, Sam. I laughed, but there was no use in being surprised at anything Uncle Naboth did. I've got a whole empty cabin, second mate's. All right, then. When do we sail? Three o'clock, Uncle Naboth. Sharp. Very good, then. He turned and ambled away toward the town, and rather thoughtfully, I entered my boat and was rowed out to the Gladys H. Chapter 3. The Moit Convertible Automobile The flat boat came alongside within the hour. 
On it was a big object covered with soiled canvas and tied round and round with cords like a package from the grocer. Beside it stood Moit, motionless, until the barge made fast, and Ned Britton, who at my request had ordered the windlass made ready, had the tackle lowered to hoist it aboard. Then the inventor directed his men in a clear-headed, composed way that made the task easy enough. The big bundle appeared not so heavy as it looked and swung up without much strain on the tackle. I found a place for it just abaft of the forecastle where it would not interfere with the sailors in working the ship. In a brief space of time, Duncan Moit had screwed hooks in the planking and lashed his bulky contrivance so firmly to the deck that no ordinary pitch or roll of the ship could possibly affect its security. Then he carried his trunk and several packages to his cabin, which I had assigned him next to my own, and after that I lost sight of him in the responsible duties of our preparation to hoist anchor. Luncheon was served while we waited for the tide, but there was as yet no sign of Uncle Naboth. I really did not know whether to expect him or not. He might have changed his mind, I reflected, for unless it was a business matter, my uncle and partner was wont to be extremely erratic in his decisions, and he had no business at all to join me on this voyage, except, as he had said, he was tired of the land and wished to relieve his restlessness by the smell of salt water. He was not a sailor at all, nor even a navigator, but he had sailed so many years as supercargo and trader that he was seldom contented for long on land, and like myself he dreaded the long wait until spring, when my beautiful new craft would be ready for her maiden voyage. So for a time I thought it probable that he would come alongside, and then I thought it probable he would not. If he ran across Captain Steele, my father was liable to discourage him from making so long and useless a voyage when no profit was to be had from it. My case was different. I was a boy still full of youthful energy and enthusiasm that needed a safety valve. More often, I was pardonably proud of my new position, being for the first time the captain of a ship in name and authority, although I was forced to acknowledge to myself that Ned Britton was the real captain, and that without him I would be very helpless indeed. Two o'clock came, and then three o'clock, and there was no evidence of Uncle Naboth. I gave a sigh of regret and unfeigned disappointment, and nodded to Ned to weigh anchor, for the tide was beginning to turn. My new men worked cheerily and with a will, and soon the anchor was a peak. Our mainsail set and we were standing out to sea on our doubtful attempt to round the horn and reach the blue waters of the Pacific. We had left the bay and were standing well out from the coast when I happened to glance over the rail and notice a small launch coming toward us from the harbor at full speed. They were unable to signal from that distance, but I brought a powerful glass and soon made out the form of Uncle Naboth standing upright in the middle of the little craft, and gracefully waving a red handkerchief. I had Ned luff and lay to, laughing to think how nearly the little uncle had missed us, 
and before long the launch covered the distance between us and came alongside. Uncle Naboth was gorgeous in appearance. He was dressed in a vividly checked suit and wore a tourist cap perched jauntily atop his iron-gray locks. His shirt bosom was wonderfully pleated, his shoes of shiny patent leather, and he wore yellow kid gloves that wrinkled dreadfully. Moreover, the greatest wonder of all to me, my uncle was smoking a big, fat cigar instead of his accustomed corncob pipe, and he had a Kodak camera slung over one shoulder and a marine glass over the other. As they came alongside, my uncle began a long but calm argument with the crew of the launch, who were greatly excited, and this might have continued indefinitely had not Ned become impatient and yelled a warning that he was about to tack. At this, Uncle Naboth thrust some money into the hand of the skipper and leisurely ascended the ladder while a chorus of curses and threats fell upon his unheeding ears. Nearly missed you, Sam, didn't I? he said, nodding cheerfully as the sails filled and we headed into the breeze again. Close shave, but no alum or bay rum. What made you late, uncle? Had to get my outfit ready, he said, puffing his cigar, smoothing out his gloves, and at the same time casting a critical eye over the deck. First time in me life, Nevy, that I went to sea on a pleasure trip. No business to look after, no worry, no figurin'. Just sailing away over the deep blue sea with a jolly crew. That's the life for me, eh, Sam? Right you are, Uncle. Just a passenger. And a mighty welcome one. I'm glad you caught us. Stern chase, but not a long one. What do you suppose, Sam? I had to pay them pirates in that half-grown steamboat thirty dollars to get me aboard. Thirty dollars? Dreadful, wasn't it? And then they wanted sixty. Took me for a tourist gent, cause I looked the part. But I was bound to come and they was up to my anxiousness. So it might be expected as they'd soak me good and plenty. Where'd you say you was bound for, Sam? Down the coast, around the Horn, and then up the Pacific to San Pedro. Sounds interesting. His bright little eye had been observant. What's aboard, my lad? Steel beams for some new buildings in Los Angeles. Loaded rather heavy, ain't she? Too heavy, Uncle. Huh. Not any too tight, either, I take it. Hull old and rotten. Plenty of paint to cover up the wormholes. Exactly, sir. Will you make it, Sam? Can't say, Uncle, but I'll try. Cargo insured. No, that's the worst of it. The owners insure themselves, because the tub won't pass at Lloyd's. If we sink, it's a big loss. So we can't sink. Iron won't float, Nettie. I'm going to hug the coast, mostly. If trouble comes to us, we'll beat her. You may be in for a long cruise, Uncle. He nodded quite pleasantly. That's okay, Sam. I take it we'll manage to get home by spring, and that's time enough for us both. But I can see she ain't a racehorse, Sam. Indeed, the ship was not behaving at all to suit me. With a favorable breeze and an easy sea, the miserable old hulk was sailing more like a waterlogged raft 
than a modern merchantman. Her sails and cordage were new and beautiful, her paint spick and span, but I noticed my sailors wagging their heads with disappointment as the Gladys H. labored through the water. Uncle Naboth chuckled to himself and glanced at me as if he thought it a good joke and I the only victim. But I pretended to pay no attention to him. Being as he expressed himself to be a loafing landlubber, I installed him in the last of the roomy cabins aft, all of which opened into the officer's mess room. Ned Britton had the cabin opposite me, and Mr. Perkins, the one opposite to that, occupied by Duncan Moyt. For my part, I was pleased enough to have such good company on a voyage that promised to be unusually tedious. Moyt had kept well out of our way until everything was snug and ship-shape. Then he came on deck and stood where he could keep a tender eye on his precious machine. I introduced him to Uncle Naboth, and the two passengers shook hands cordially and were soon conversing in a friendly manner. I decided to take my sailors into my confidence in the very beginning, so I called all hands together and made them a brief speech. My lads, I said, we need not look forward to a very good voyage, for you have doubtless discovered already that the Gladys H. is not a greyhound. To be honest with you, she's old and leaky and none too safe. But she's got a valuable cargo aboard that must be safely delivered if we can manage it. And we are, all of us, well paid to do our duty by the owners. My instructions are to hug the land and make a harbor if bad weather comes. At the worst, we can run the ship on the shingle and save the cargo in that way, for the cargo is worth a dozen such tubs. It's a somewhat risky undertaking, I know. And if any of you don't like your berths, I'll put you ashore at the first likely place, and you can go home again. But if you are willing to stick with me, I'll take good care of you as I can, and your money is sure because the Inter-Ocean Forwarding Company is back of us and good for every penny. What do you say, my lads? They were a good-natured lot and appreciated my frankness. After a little conference together, the boatswain declared that they were all content to see the venture to the end and do the best they could under the circumstances. So a mutual understanding was established from the beginning, and before the end came, I had cause to be proud of every man aboard. The warm was warm and pleasant, and as I sat with our passengers, Uncle Naboth got his eye on the overgrown grocery package on the deck and said to Moyt, What sort of automobile have you got? The man had been dreaming, but he gave a start, and his eyes lighted with sudden interest. The abstracted mood disappeared. It is one of my own inventions, sir. What do you call it? The Moit Convertible Automobile. Hey, convertible? Yes, sir. I guess I am up again. Convertible is a word I just don't catch the meaning of. Latin's a little rusty, you know. So long since I last went to school. It means, said Moit seriously, that the machine is equally adapted to land and water. My uncle stared a little, then looked away and began to whistle softly. Ned Britton sighed and walked to the rail as if to observe our motion. For my part, I had before entertained a suspicion that the poor fellow was not quite right in the mind. 
so I was not surprised. But he appeared gentlemanly enough, and was quite earnest, so fearing he might notice the rather pointed conduct of my uncle and Ned, I made a hasty remark with fitting gravity. That's a very desirable combination, Mr. Moyt, and uh, a great improvement on the ordinary auto. Oh, there is nothing ordinary about the machine in any way. Indeed, it is so different from all other motor vehicles in use, it cannot properly be termed an automobile. For some time I intended to provide an appropriate name for my invention, but until now the machine itself has occupied my every thought. To be sure, I said rather vaguely. Most automobiles, began my uncle, lying back in his chair and giving me a preliminary wink, are built only to go on land and bulk when they get near a repair shop. I was telling a fellow the other day in New York, who was becalmed in the middle of the street, that if he'd only put a sail at his wagon and wait for a stiff breeze, he could tell all the repairmen to go to thunder. But this has nothing to do with Mr. Moyt's invention, I said, trying not to smile. Mr. Moyt's automobile is different. As how? asked my uncle. Mr. Moyne himself undertook the reply. In the first place, he said, eyes big, looking straight through me with an absorbed expression as if I were invisible, I do not use the ordinary fuel for locomotion. Gasoline is expensive and dangerous and needs constant replenishing. Electricity, unreliable, and its storage very bulky. Both these forces are crude and unsatisfactory. My first thought was to obtain a motive power that could be relied upon at all times, that is inexpensive and always available. I found it in the form of compressed air. Oh, ejaculated Uncle Naboth. I'm sure he knew less about automobiles than I did, for I owned a small machine at home and had driven it some while on shore. But Mr. Perkins prided himself on being familiar with all modern inventions, and what he did not know from personal experience, he was apt to imagine he knew. Compressed air, he observed oracularly, is what blows the sails of a ship. The inventor turned on him a look of wonder. This seems to me like a clever idea, I hastened to say. But I can't exactly see, sir, how you manage to use compressed air for a purpose like this. I have a storage tank, Boyne answered, which is constantly replenished by the pumps as fast as the air is exhausted, which of course only occurs when the machine is in action. But you need something to start the engines, I suggested. Do you use gasoline for that purpose? No, sir. I have a glycerin explosive which is so condensed that an atom is all that is required to prime the engines. In a little chamber that contains about a pint, I can carry enough explosive to last me for a year. And wherever there is air, I have power that is perpetual. That's great, cried Uncle Naboth with enthusiasm, so plainly assumed that Ned and I had much ado to keep from laughing outright. In other words, continued Moyt, I've made marked improvements upon the ordinary motor car. Will you allow me, gentlemen, to show you my machine and explain it to you? 
We were glad enough of this diversion. Even Ned, who could not have run a sewing machine, was curious to examine our crazy passenger's invention. Moyd at once began to untie the cords and remove the soiled canvas, which consisted of parts of worn-out sails stitched clumsily together. But when this uninviting cover was withdrawn, we saw with astonishment a machine of such beauty, completeness, and exquisite workmanship that our exclamations of delight were alike spontaneous and genuine. Moit might be mad, but as a mechanic he was superb, if this was indeed a creation of his own hands. An automobile. It had four massive wheels with broad rubber tires, a steering gear of which only the wheel was visible, and the body for the passengers to ride in, but otherwise the world-pervading auto fiend would not have recognized the thing. It seemed to be all of metal, a curious metal of dull silver hue, not painted, not polished in any place, but so finely constructed that every joint and fitting appeared perfect. It was graceful of design, too, although the body was shaped like the hull of a boat, with the wheels so placed that the structure was somewhat more elevated from the ground than ordinary. This body was about a foot in thickness, having an inner and outer surface composed of beautifully riveted plates of the strange metal. Moit explained that part of the space was used for vacuum chambers, which were kept exhausted by the pumps when required, and made the machine wonderfully light. Also, within what corresponded with the gunwale of a boat, were concealed the parts of the adjustable top, which, when raised into position and hooked together, formed a dome-shaped cover for the entire body. These parts were almost entirely of glass, in which a fine wire netting had been embedded, so that the riders could clearly see on all sides. Any breakage of the glass was unlikely to occur. In any event, it could only crack, as the netting would still hold the broken pieces in place. The engines were in the front chamber of the body. There were four of them, each no bigger than a gallon jug. But Moit assured us they were capable of developing 25 horsepower each, or a total of 100 horsepower, owing to the wonderful efficiency of the compressed air. All the other machinery was similarly condensed in size, and so placed that the operator could reach instantly any part of it. The entrance was at either side, or at the back, as one preferred, but the seats were arranged in a circle around the body, with the exception of the driver's seat. So roomy was the car that from six to eight passengers could be carried with comfort, or even more in case of emergency. All of these things were more easily understood by observation than I can hope to explain them with a pen. Perhaps I have omitted to describe them to you as clearly as I should, but I must plead in extenuation a lack of mechanical knowledge. That you will all ride in similar cars some day, I have no doubt, and then you will understand all the details that I, a plain sailor, have been forced to ignore because of my ignorance of mechanics. But. I don't yet see what drives the blamed thing through the water, said Uncle Naboth, whose eyes were fairly bulging in amazement. Moit smiled for almost the first time since I had known him, and the smile was one of triumphant pride. He entered the automobile, 
touched some buttons, and with a whirring sound, a dozen little scoop-shaped flanges sprang from the rim of each wheel. There was no need for further explanation. We could see at once that in water the four wheels now became paddle wheels, and their rapid revolution would no doubt drive the machine at a swift pace. The paddles were cleverly shaped, being made of the same metal employed everywhere in the construction of this astonishing invention, and they stood at just the right angle to obtain the utmost power of propulsion. Is it made of aluminum? questioned Mr. Perkins, pointing to the metal. No, sir. This is perhaps my most wonderful discovery, and you will pardon me if I say it is a secret which I am unwilling at this time to divulge, but I may tell you that I have found an alloy that is unequaled in the known world for strength, durability, and lightness. It weighs a little more than pure aluminum, but it has a thousand times its tensile strength. You may test one of these blades, which seem to the eye to be quite delicate and fragile. Uncle Naboth leaned over and gingerly tested one of the wheel blades with his thumb and finger. Then he exerted more strength. Finally, he put his heel upon it and tried to bend it with the weight of his body. He resisted all efforts with amazing success. And now the inventor pushed some other buttons or keys, and the metal blades all receded and became once more part of the rims of the wheels. When we get to San Pedro, gentlemen, it will give me pleasure to take you for a ride in my machine, he said. Both on land and water, then you will be sure to appreciate its perfection more fully. He began to replace the canvas cover, apologizing as much to his beloved machine as to us for its shabbiness. All of my money was consumed by the machine itself, he explained, and I was forced to use this cloth to make a cover which is needed only to protect my invention from prying eyes. The metal will never rust, nor will it corrode. Is this material, this alloy, easy to work? I asked. He shook his head. It is very difficult. Steel crumbles against it with discouraging readiness so that my tools were all of the same metal, annealed and hardened. Even these had to be constantly replaced. You must not imagine, sir, that I obtained all of this perfection at the first trial. I have been years experimenting. So I imagine, Mr. Moyt. By a fortunate coincidence, he went on dreamily, my money which I had inherited from my father lasted me until all the work was complete. I thought of nothing but my machine, and having at last finished it and made thorough tests to assure myself that it was as nearly perfect as human skill can make it. At that point I awoke to find myself bankrupt and in debt. By selling my tools, my workshop, and everything else I possessed, except the machine itself, I managed to pay my indebtedness and have two hundred dollars left. This was not enough to get myself and my car shipped to California by rail, so I was at my wit's end, until you, sir, he said, turning to me, kindly came to my rescue. During the pause that followed, he finished covering up his machine, and then Uncle Naboth asked bluntly, If you are sure the blame thing will work, why didn't you just run it over land to California? That has been done more than once, I'm told 
and as you use compressed air, the expense wouldn't be a circumstance. That had occurred to me, too, and I awaited the man's reply with much curiosity. Sir, he answered, you must not forget that I have devoted years to this work, years of secret and constant toil, and that my whole heart is involved in the success of my perfected machine. But you can readily understand I have not dared to patent it or any of its parts until it was all complete, for an imperfect patent not only fails to protect one, but in this case it would have given other designers of automobiles the ideas I had originated. A patent is never a safeguard if it can be improved or stolen. As I have said, when at last my work was finished, I had no money with which to obtain patents, of which no less than nineteen I required to protect me. And have you at this time no patents at all? I asked, surprised at such neglect. He shook his head. Not one. There, gentlemen, stands one of the most important mechanical inventions the world has ever known, and its inventor has no protection whatsoever, as yet. If I attempted to run the machine over land to the Pacific coast, a dozen automobile experts would see it and promptly steal my ideas. Such a risk was too great to run. I must manage to reach my rich and selfish uncle, prove to him how wonderful my invention is, offer him a half interest in it, and so procure the money to protect it and establish a manufacturing facility. Do you understand now why I have acted in so puzzling a way? Puzzling at least to one not aware of my dilemma? Quite clear to me, I replied, beginning to think my passenger was not mad after all. But have you not been foolish to confide all of this in us? He smiled pleasantly, and the smile made his face quite attractive. I am not especially stupid, believe me. I am a fair judge of human nature. You will pardon me if I say that not a man on this ship is a danger to me at all. How is that? I asked, slightly discomfited. No man among you is competent to steal my invention, he asserted coolly. Even if you were disposed to do so, which I doubt, it would require a dishonest person who is a mechanical expert. And while there are many such between Chelsea and California, I am sure there is none on this ship who would wrong me, even if he possessed the power. I feel entirely secure, gentlemen, in your company. This was diplomatic, at least, for we were naturally pleased at the tribute to our good faith, even if inclined to resent the disparagement of our mechanical genius. However, we regarded Duncan Moyt with a more friendly light and with vastly increased respect from that time forward. It was growing dark by this time, and presently Nux announced that dinner was served. So we repaired to the mess cabin, and while testing Brionia's superb talents as a cook beguiled the hour by canvassing the future possibilities of the Moit convertible automobile.